welcome to another episode of the Shift Drink Podcast. I'm Ed Rudisell, and sitting here today, I guess remotely still, I, I keep saying that at the beginning of every episode now, but I don't really know why. Like, of course it's remote. I think we've only done two in-person interviews in the last year, uh, but I've got Mystic Alcohol from Boston and Delmagay and uh, drinking like ladies and books and podcasts and she does everything as do most of our guests but um she's one of the most accomplished people out there uh if you aren't aware she has definitely um touched your life in some way even if you don't know her uh welcome to the show misty oh thank you so much for having me i'm psyched to be here right off the bat i want to apologize for the random texts that you get from me sometimes since my sister is also named misty (laughs) (laughs) i catch it occasionally i'm like oh shit wrong misty Well, she's one of the few other Misties I know. <laughs> yeah. Right. So is that your given name? Yeah. Yeah, her too. Yeah. I, I know there's some out there that are like Melissa's, but no, that, that's her given name as well. I think the funniest time I met another Misty was when I was bartending at um, the Lizard Lounge in Cambridge. And, you know, it was one of those things where I kept hearing somebody calling my name and I'd turn around and nobody would be looking at me. No one. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? And finally, I saw the person who was calling my name, but not looking at me. And I walked over and I was like, is there another Misty here? And she goes, <laughs> yeah. And she points across the bar to this woman in a bright pink wig. <laughs> and I was like, of course, oh, yeah. it's the woman in a bright pink wig. <laughs> oh, so my sister's, I mean, her, obviously her last name was Rudisell before she got married, but she married uh, my brother-in-law, Matt Rose. So her give her married name is now Misty Rose. Awesome. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so I love I love sending mail to her, and I always like just have fun with the address and the name, just see if her mailman's paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fun, Misty. And I was, you know, her daughter's Scarlet Rose. I'm like, gosh, I'm like, you're just naming her to like kind of grow up, and you know, she's already got her stage name. And she said. <laughs> To be to be fair, there is nothing I could have named my children that wouldn't have sounded, you know, salacious. I'm like, well, okay, that is a good that is a good point. <laughs> She's stuck with it. So, you've got so much going on. I know that um, we say so much going on, but right now, you know, we're you're, we're stuck in the house. I talked to you a little earlier today, and you said, you know, you just <laughs> taking your daily walk to make sure you don't. Uh, Lose you know, my balloon mind. out like the rest of us. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, I'm still working, you know, I've, I actually haven't had, but a couple of days off since March, but it's just locked in a different room than my house. <laughs> you know, it's still a different, you know, I get to drive back and forth, but that's about it. Yeah. So, yeah. How you been holding up? Um, you know, pretty good. I, it's, um, I, I've been really careful and cautious more so than I think a lot of people have been. Um, mm, but same. one of the things that I was able to do is was I went to Green Bay for two and a half months, which is where I grew up, and helped wow. my parents move out of the family home into a, a new, more appropriate space for people who are in their 80s. Um, <laughs> and so it, that was a little bit of a reminder of just how, you know, like lucky I am in the, in the grand scheme of things, you know, like just in general, my health is good. Um, the health of my family is good. And, um, you know, I had the opportunity to spend that two and a half months helping my folks out, which would would have never happened if this wasn't the case. So it was a good kind of like check. It's, it's, it's really easy to just think about all of the things we've lost, but, um, you know, there, there, there's a lot that we have, you know, and I, I, I've been doing my best to remind myself of that while still going a bit stir crazy and still, yeah, sure. you know, 
it's hard not to think about, you know, time lost with um, people that maybe aren't here anymore, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and yeah. but I think overall, I'm, I'm doing all right, you know, staying busy yeah. and, um, you know, Kitty and I launched the podcast. Um, we had always planned on launching a podcast to go along with our book, Drinking Like Ladies. And when the pandemic started, we just felt so helpless. Like, yeah. what? what can we do? And mm-hmm. I think there was a little bit of like this guilt, this survivor's guilt, if you will, because we had both transitioned out of working in bars into the supplier side of things, but still so connected with our friends um, in that space who, you know, either own or work in bars, restaurants. Um, and so we were just like, our brains were really all thinking about constantly, what can we do to help? And so we kind of fast tracked the podcast to really focus on for that first season, just advice for people. And whether it was, we did some that were specific to the business side of things, you know, one with Sean Finter and, and the political side of things, like how do you advocate for yourself and the importance of local politics with Bobby Hugel. But for the most part, it was really focusing on taking care of ourselves, you know, mental health and physical health and, you know, things like that. And it was, it was such kind of a godsend because I didn't realize how much it was stuff I needed to hear as well. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I've long said this kind of what I do here with shift drink is it's every two weeks, but you know, there's times where I'm just ready to strangle everyone or, you know, hang myself. And I, you know, I, during this, I would, I wish I could say that that's not like a literal thing, but you know, and it's a a reset for me to remind me why I love to do what I do, despite all the things that have happened this year and all the things that could happen. You know, I still really like the involvement. I like the people like sitting down and talking, you know, with you and it kind of re-energizes me because your energy feeds me, you know? <laughs> and so, and ironically, I actually was going to do a big um, episode with a um, um, psychiatrist literally the week before everything shut down. And they said, don't be in the same room with anybody. And she was going to be, she's specifically works with service industry. I'm like, oh, this is great. And yeah, I, I, I think I could have used that, that interview. <laughs> Quite a lot. You know, I think it's been a real check for a lot of us. And I think in some cases, you know, it's people like you who are like, I'm invested in this. This is like, this is more than just my livelihood. It's really something that feeds my soul. And, uh, you know, this is reminding me how much I love it. Um, For some people, I think they were recognizing that maybe that wasn't the best thing for them and it's time to transition. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there are some people that feel forced to transition just because of the monetary factor, which is just sad. You know, they don't have the opportunity to really make that choice whether... You know, they it, it's wanted or not. It's it's nece- out of necessity, um, but it has been a little bit of a gut check, I think, for a lot of people. You know, is is this really where I've, I'm meant to be, or right. is it something that I've stayed in, or you know? Um, and we've certainly seen that in like the very large cities, New York in particular. I know at one point, um, I like <laughs> I mentioned every show, but you know, Souther is just kind of so ever present in our industry. Um, and with his podcast as well. But I mean, there was a point at which he told his bartenders to start exploring options, you know, uh, with their degrees, you know, mm-hmm. to like, if this this would be the time to jump ship, <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, so <laughs> I was like, that's insane. You're encouraging. <laughs> but I mean, you know, I mean, you, you have to take care of your people and sometimes taking care of them is letting them go do something, you know, different. 
I also think that it's going to be um, really interesting to see because I think there are a lot of people that um, love this industry as much as we do, um, mm -hmm. but who took advantage of this forced timeout in a lot of cases um, to do some online courses and do yes. some, some different things that I think they'll turn around in and feed back into our industry in really unique Absolutely. ways. You know, um, I, I think about when I, when I take groups down to Oaxaca, we stay at this bed and breakfast by our bottling facility called La Cupola and the owner, Demetrio, um, he and his family, they're all weavers, right? And so his father, he grew up learning the craft and everything. Um, and his father sent him to college. He, they had a deal, like he had to learn the family trade. They use all natural dyes. So, and, you know, learning the craft of weaving and everything. And then he sent him to college and then he goes, you can be whatever you want, but you have to learn the family trade first. And so Demetrio went to college and he got a degree in business. And now he's using that to help promote this family craft, right? Um, because he recognized how much he loved it. Um, and I feel like there's there's a parallel there. I think we're going to see some some amazing people in our industry who really love the industry, but took this opportunity to really venture out and explore some, some other areas um, mm -hmm. and gain some skills that they're going to use to help better the industry when they come back. Absolutely. I think you're totally right. And so I wanted to kind of back up into where you are, because you, you said, you know, you had a little bit of survivor's guilt by being on the supply side rather than, um, you know, behind the bar. And, um, but you weren't always like that. So uh, you, I think most people nowadays, because you've been doing it for so long, kind of associate you with Mezcal, they associate with, with Oaxaca. I swear to God, every person I know is like, oh my God, have you ever been to Oaxaca with Misty? Um, <laughs> and yeah, but you know, it's you've been doing it for long enough now that it's really quite easy to associate you with that and to kind of forget where you came from. You know, how did you start in, in craft bartending? Because you were there very early before you know craft was so pervasive and prolific mm -hmm. in the way that it is. And at this point, and it, it, it is funny because I'm texting with a mutual friend of ours, or I was uh, before talking, and uh, he literally just texted me. So um, brother Cleve, who's been on the show before, just texted me, and you know, he <laughs> he mentioned. Um, Saturnalia, the weekly cocktail party that you guys did together. Um, yes. And, you know, he started it back in 96. And, and anyways, I, I wanted to bring you back into like where you got started. Yeah. And, and, you know, because where you ended up is amazing. And it, it's been a cool uh, path. And you're yeah. a perfect example of what positive attitude, hard work, dedication can get you, you know. Yeah. You get you lots of, lots of trips to Oaxaca. And <laughs> Well, it's awesome that you're texting with Cleve because he's a huge part of this story. You know, he really was a mentor to me at a time where nobody else was really interested in classic cocktails. So um, I started bartending while I was going to school at Harvard Divinity School to get my master's. Um, and I landed well I had worked as a server at a, at a restaurant and they opened up this nightclub um, called the Lizard Lounge. And I shifted over to bartending there. I actually started as a cocktail waitress and then a bartender no called no showed on a on the night of a record release party and they threw me on the bar. <laughs> How many people started for with that exact story? You know, like <laughs> someone no showed, somebody threw their towel down and walked out. You know? Um, and so I I mean I must have done all right. I I still think of my friend Cliff who I've lost touch with, but when we were working there together, God bless him. Like that night I would turn to him and be like, I don't know how to make this drink that somebody just asked for. And instead of making it, he would just tell the ingredients to me. He was like, just do it. Like we were so slammed, you know? Um, 
but uh, and that was when Khalif was doing Saturnalia and Saturnalia was this crazy party this was like the 1996 was like the age of 1996-97 was the age of everybody watching swingers right so right. all these rock kids you know Boston rock kids getting dressed up in their suits and their cocktail dresses and coming down to drink Manhattans and martinis and and Cleve would play like Escavel and all this awesome like lounge and lounge core, you know. And uh, every night, every week, he would have his cocktail of the week, and he mm-hmm. would drink that one cocktail, and it was always a classic cocktail. Or usually, there were a couple of ones that he had come up with um, with the millionaire when they were on tour, um, but um, he would drink it all night long. So by the end of the night, I'd have another recipe memorized. You know, and a lot of people would just come up and be like, I, I'm drinking whatever Cleve's drinking. Right. So I was making this cocktail over and over and over again. And so over the course of the several years that we did this party, I just created this catalog of cocktails in my head. You know, not even thinking I'm still going to school. I'm not even mm-hmm. thinking about where it was going to take me. I'm like, <laughs> you know, and in 96, I mean, you know, there wasn't really I, I was working in the industry. I did actually I started full-time the the following year. That's when I started my management career and I haven't done anything since then. But I mean, we were making, you know, the pre-mixed Long Islands, you know, this is the the surfer on acid shots and, you know, all those terrible things. And you were doing like some really cool things. And we, again, Cleve was on the show many, many years ago. Um, Anybody that's interested in go back and listen to it and talk about, you know, how they kind of got a, a Campari sponsorship when they were on tour. But here's an exact quote. I, this is what Cleve just texted to me uh, as we're talking. I'm having two conversations here. Um, <laughs> we were a legendary team. She fucking killed it. Solo bartender making cocktails for 120 thirsty people all night long. I created the drinks and played the records. She made the drinks. You know, it's that, that's high praise. You know, it's real cool to have gotten involved. And like, I mean, he's, you know, a cool dude. He's been around, you know, you it's just uh, you kind of get to absorb some of his coolness. He's like hanging with Frank Zappa and shit. And we're just like, you're a college kid. He's also a great mentor because he loves to share his mm-hmm. knowledge. So like our night did not end when the bar closed. Like we will always go to one person's house or the next and have cocktails to like wind down and chat about cocktail history and and spirit history. And if we were at his house, he had all these great old cocktail manuals. I'm pretty sure I missed a lot of classes on Friday morning. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, you know, I was like, he's had to have like kind of put a wedge in between the life you were living at night and the life that your like classmates were living at night, you well, know? <laughs> There were definitely some mornings when I would like get up, roll out of bed and go straight to class. And I remember specifically this one, this one seminar class where this guy who I actually had a little bit of a crush on, but he was like super straight and narrow. Right. And I'm not that like he's like he was like khakis, whatever. But he had a nice personality. He was very friendly. He's like he wasn't like a lot of the other Harvard people like that, you know, and um. <laughs> he ended up standing up and moving to a different seat because I smelled so much like the bar room from the night before. <laughs> that is awesome. So I'm guessing that, that there was no first date. No, <laughs> not <Yeah>. at all. <laughs> I don't think I can go that hard. <laughs> but, you know, those those late nights were great. I mean, like, you couldn't roll into a liquor store and buy a bottle of rye off the shelf at that point in time. You had to right. order it yeah. special order. And I'll never forget the night that Cleve rolled into the Lizard Lounge and handed me a bottle of Old Overhold and 
dubbed me his apprentice, essentially, you know? Um, (laughs) And so it was such an amazing time because he was just so generous with his knowledge, you know? And Mm -hmm. and I I think it's not easy to be a good mentor. No, no, absolutely not. There's a lot of really um, talented people out there, but it's very difficult to kind of not only teach, but, you know, take someone under their wing. I I talk with my friend, uh, Sophia a bit about that because, you know, she's kind of looked for that in the bar and in her bar career and never really found that one person that clicked and you really kind of like would take her under the wing. And so that's, it it is rare, um, especially one with such deep experience. Yeah, exactly. So it was really like a a pivotal moment. And then, you know, I, I finished grad school and I, I realized that I had been bartending and I had this job I loved. You know, and and there's so many people who search their entire lives for a job that they love and they never find it. So why Mm -hmm. would I set aside this whole thing? You know, like I enjoyed it. I I felt creative. I loved the interactions. I loved taking care of people, all of these things. Um, And so much to the chagrin of my parents (laughs) 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 with a very expensive master's degree in my pocket, I continued to bartend like so many people in the hospitality industry, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And so Cleve was consulting on um, a new bar that was opening the B-Side Lounge. um, And it was going to be owned by two alumni from East Coast Grill, which was a very popular restaurant owned by Chris Lessinger. Um, and Patrick Sullivan was on the bar side of things on that ownership part, um, partnership and, um, and Cleve introduced me to him and he was like, oh my God, I have been searching high and low. I don't, I don't want a bar just like all manned by dudes, you know, like I, I, I don't want that at all. He's like, but unfortunately the majority of the people that have been coming through the door just aren't interested in the style of cocktails that we're doing. And and it would be fine if they were interested in learning, but it doesn't even feel like that, you know? Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so it was really kind of a perfect match, you know? Um, unfortunately, I had decided to go down to Key West for a season to try and make as much money as possible to try and get ahead on my student loans before they mm-hmm. started accruing interest. But I got into a weird situation in Key West with um, some uh, a not good living situation. So I came back about two weeks after the B-side opened and they would have had me on the bar that very literally the night I got, I got off the plane. If I had said yes, <laughs> like, I had, <laughs> I had, like one night to settle back into my apartment. And then it was, a, it was a Thursday night, the day I walked in and, you know, I still remember the feeling when I walked in the door of the B-side lounge, it was such a special place, you know, and I, like nobody's really created that, that electricity. I don't feel like, and you can talk to people that own the best bars here in Boston. I think anybody who's, who was at the B side in the heyday will agree with that. You know, it was like this bar that had been through so many things from like, we we don't even know all of the incarnations, but it's last incarnation before the B side was like rough and tumble, like books being run out of the basement, drugs being sold out of the bathroom, like full on. And But in the course of construction, they found this beautiful tin ceiling. They put in like all these kind of vintage style um, uh, booths, you know, it was just gorgeous. Big horseshoe shaped bar that was the center of the room, you know, and Patrick had really instilled hospitality in his team. Like every bartender knew that if a guest walked in the door or left without 
being greeted or said thank you to when if a host wasn't there, it was the bartender's responsibility because they were right there. And he always said, you know, if somebody walked into your house and handed you twenty dollars, you would say hello and you would say thank you. Right. And so absolutely. he had set, you know, just this real, this amazing expectation for hospitality. Um, but on top of it was so interested in the classic cocktails, which is why Cleve was involved. And so he mm. started out with like this five cocktail cocktail list that was like Manhattan martini, like real Manhattan, real martini, Bobby Burns. Um, what else was on that aviation before creme de Vila wow. was available. Um, so <laughs> it was, just, you know, it was just Jen lemon and, and Maraschino. <laughs> wow. You know, yeah, um, really early to even have a, a knowledge of that drink. Yeah. That was 1998, mm-hmm. you know? And so just, a, I mean, it's a full decade before, you know, the, the full like aftershocks of like PDT and all that, you yeah. know, it's, so, and that's why I always like listening to the the stories of like the kind of craft cocktail scene in Boston, which um, was covered a bit by, was it Robert Simonson yeah. that wrote a proper drink? Um, I, I don't have my book. I loaned it to someone and I don't know who I loaned it to. Um, but I remember, you know, kind of reading about the scene that, that really never died um, in Boston, which is real cool because it, it, those things get forgotten. You know, I, in 96, you didn't find craft and like, you've got your mentor that's touring the, the country <laughs> with a band that he had this a weird obsession of finding esoteric bottles that hadn't been sold from a liquor store. I, he told me that he, he loved Indiana and Ohio um, because there were a lot of like kind of little tiny liquor stores where he could find strange uh, bottles that hadn't been available for, you know, a couple decades. Mm-hmm. And so for you to be in 98, you know, doing aviation, I mean, most people wouldn't have even heard of anything like that at that point. Yeah. It was really special. You know, it, it was just a, it was a great spot. And Patrick had done a really good job of of getting really some of the anchors in not just the bar scene, but the hospitality scene. So mm. like to have Lily Dennison, who anybody who's listening from the Boston area will know her because she used to book music at some of the best clubs. You know, she like she had this crazy career uh, being a tour manager for the Del Fuegos and like mm-hmm. just it just amazing, amazing person, you know, um, but really had the best of all of these different groups of people and, uh, and, and parts of Boston that made Boston really special, you know? So it was super cool. And I, I think that, I mean, obviously that was a huge turning point, you know, that's where I, I met, um, beyond Cleve. It's that's, that's where I started to meet people like Simon Ford, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Bridget Albert, um, you know, like just, uh, really uh, people that were more known on a larger scale, but you know, the B side and John Gertzen was working at Salamander, I believe at that time, like they really kind of set the stage for Boston being like known for hospitality. Right. Like we realized at an early stage that we could either just kind of fall back in the shadow of New York or do something to set Mm up, set ourselves apart. And it was really through hospitality, you know? So like as more more bars started opening up, we'd be like we'd be texting and calling each other and being like, "Oh, I just had this guest who's in town from Chicago, and they these are the cocktails they had, and they're coming over to see you. Like, can you save a couple seats at the bar? You know, like 
I love that. Yeah. It just really kind of working together as a team so that people started to recognize what we were doing in a way that was different, you know? Um, so that was really cool. There's this it's funny. I mean, you, you're, you've, you've segued me and I don't even need to really host today. I'm just going to turn my mic off because that's exactly what I was going to ask you about because it, there is this kind of like real cool vibe of just hospitality at a time um, you know, where we see as we head into 2004, 2005, 2006, seven, you know, kind of that pre 2010 craft cocktail era where um, you kind of had to be, I don't want to say had to be, but you really saw like the snobby asshole bartender come into um, the forefront because, it, and I, and I understand why that happened. You know, you kind of had to force people to learn how to drink. They didn't know, and they weren't going to learn unless you just kind of, you know, I, I don't know. I still don't like the eye roll or the, you know, all the things that have been, uh, you know, teased and, and parroted and all that. But, you know, like anybody talking to you can obviously hear <laughs> that you love your guests. You love like talking about the craft, doing the thing. You know, it's I couldn't imagine coming into a bar and saying and having like asshole miss. You'd be like, uh. <laughs> oh my God, I can't believe you're going to drink that. Well, you know? I think that it's, you know, it was a growth, right? Like there are so many people that I interacted with along the way who, who helped take that to another level for me. Like, right. you know, when I worked at Drink with John Gertson, the hospitality that like John Gertson oozes it out of his pores. Like he just, it, like he can't help it. It's just who he is. He doesn't have to think about it. Right. And so I, he's always he always knows what you want before you know what you want. That's how he's always thinking. The rare right? gifts. And, yeah. and just watching some of the things that happen, like a couple of examples, every single time it started to rain outside, the first thing he would do would be go back and grab a big stack of these fluffy sea fold towels that we had. And they went straight to the front door. So any guest who came in and maybe didn't have an umbrella or if it was raining sideways and you did have an umbrella, if you needed to wipe your glasses, if you like, you know, wipe your face off, anything like we were prepared right at the front door, right? Moments where we had a line out the door and it was freezing cold because it's Boston. Um, <laughs> right. And they were serving hot cookies and hot chocolate from Sportello upstairs to the guests who were taking the time to wait to come through the front door. That's amazing. You know, and, and that's, that's the kind of thing, you know, once you, it's addictive once you start thinking that way. Mm -hmm. and, and so it, it became like, not just fun, but it was almost like, this weird competition with each other. Like, <laughs> you, you know, like I think one of my favorite moments that, that <laughs> was mm -hmm. it, it, it involved a couple on Sundays, we would frequently open the door and go from Saturdays, excuse me, we would open the door and we would go flat sat 37 oh. seats plus standing and a really high touch cocktail bar. So super challenging to kind of just get through that and kind of get into a regular rhythm. Right. And so I had a, two guests that sat down at the bar, one looked familiar, but I couldn't place him a couple. And um, they ordered tequila cocktails. So obviously, immediately friends, agave people. But they were also just really gracious in this moment when I was a little bit overwhelmed, you know. Um, <laughs> and so when I was like, I, I just need a couple minutes, you know, let me know if you have any questions. Happy to talk to you while I'm making drinks, that whole thing. Um, and then I went over to offer them another drink. And I was excited to have them around for a little bit. And they're like, no, we have to go. My niece is it's her, um, school play tonight. <laughs> I was like, Oh, so we had accidentally been sent, um, 
little um, nips of partita tequila. And mm. we were going to send them back. And John's like, ah, hold on to those. You never know when they'll come in handy, right? And I just went over to John and I explained the situation. I was like, can I put two of those nips in a to-go bag and give it to them and just tell them not to open it when they're on the premises? And he was like, absolutely. <laughs> 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 and so put together a little to-go package. I was like, you might need this during intermission. Please don't open it until you leave the building, blah, 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 blah. Come to find out, he looked familiar because he was a manager at another restaurant in, in town. And I had, I knew him by face, but not by name. We'd never been sure. introduced, you know. And I, I happened to be in the restaurant for lunch a couple of weeks later. And he's like, oh my God, that saved us. <laughs> <laughs> that's, and, and that's exactly what I'm talking about on the hospitality. And, and you know, anybody that's met you, and now has listened to you can tell that you're just somebody that's you want to be around, you know, it's, it's your fun. Yeah. <laughs> you know, oh, it's you. The, the stories, <laughs> the charisma, all those things. And, you know, I hear the same thing from all the people kind of in, in the agave world and you touched on that. And so very early on, you were getting into tequila and agave um, and that is consumed your life at this point um, here in 2021. Thank God yeah. I can say 21 now, hopefully. Um, <laughs> But so, I mean, what was your entree into the agave world? Because you've become a, a really important figure uh, in that industry, especially in the United States and, and uh, well, Mexico. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, there's two sides. There's the tequila space and the mezcal space. So sure. um, obviously connected, but my my really like my entrance into like the deep dive on those are two different people. So on the tequila space, it was David Zuro, who I was introduced to through Phil Ward. And so when David was starting the Tequila Interchange project, um, he was looking towards to Phil to kind of find out um, more people that were really interested in, in the spirit itself, you know, not just a lover and appreciator, but somebody who's really interested in kind of the trajectory of the industry, because it obviously has some problems from like mm -hmm. a sustainability standpoint. Um, and so Phil and when introduced- When would this have been? I'm sorry? I said, when would this have been? Um, that was probably around 2008 or so around the same yeah. time that I met Ron as well. So these mm -hmm. two things kind of happened around the same time, maybe a little bit later, actually, maybe more sure. like 2010. Like I was already a, a, an appreciator of tequila as a mm -hmm. beverage, but hadn't really had the opportunity to travel a lot, um, in Mexico. Uh, so probably more like 2010, honest, honestly. Um, and so through him, uh, through Phil and then David, I started spending a lot of time going down and, and learning more about kind of the issues in the category. Mm. So that was the tequila side of things. Um, on the mezcal side of things, I can, I think every single day, I think Leo de Groff. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> My brother from another mother. <laughs> um, he, Speaking uh, of waking up the next day, you know, smelling of the last, the previous night. <laughs> yeah. If you go out drinking with him, <laughs> you're definitely going to smell like that the following morning. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That is true. I mean, he's a lovely human being. I love him to death. Love you, Leo. Um, <laughs> but um, it's impossible to say no to him when he hands you a drink. <laughs> Right. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. Um, you know, he, Ron Cooper, founder of Delmagay, um, was starting to 
spend some time and energy in Massachusetts. He'd been in the state with Delmigate for a while, but not really. He needed help. Right. And so he went to Leo and said, I, I need somebody who's going to understand this, who will get behind it and help me spread the word. And Leo's like, go see Misty. And so <laughs> Ron rolled into Green Street, where I was running the bar, Green Street Grill in Cambridge, um, in 2008. Um, I had no idea he was coming. It was a Friday night. Um, thankfully a slow Friday night. <laughs> and so I was, uh, it was me and one other bartender. I was taking, we were taking care of the bar and the high tops and there was no space at the bar. So Ron and, and his friend that he was with sat down at a high top table and I went over and they ordered two te tequila cocktails of my choosing, um, which seemed intriguing because there really hadn't been an agave renaissance of any sort. And so outside, oh, outside of margaritas to have somebody ask for two mm -hmm. tequila cocktails of your choosing, it was like kind of piqued your interest. Right. So go back, make my two cocktails, take them back over. Um, really kind of intrigued about who this person might be because he Ron um, was paying attention to everything. Nothing gets by Ron. He's so observant. Right. So I could see him studying the bottles on the back bar. Whenever I would go to make a drink, he was watching my technique, everything. And I'm like, who the fuck is this guy? Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, uh, sorry if you have to bleep that out. Um, <laughs> no, there's no bleeping on this show. Are you kidding me? So, it would take all of the honesty out. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, I really don't know I'm how like, to speak. This is not tea. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so um, he a, a couple seats opened at the bar and he moves over to the bar. And he starts pulling the woven baskets with the bottles mm. out of his bag. And so I just walk over and I'm like, who the hell are you? Like at this point in time, there like all of these things had added up to a point that I was like, I'm just, I just have to ask, you know? Mm -hmm. And so he said, my name is Ron Cooper. I import Moscow. Um, I, we have a mutual friend in Leo DeGroff and he said that you would, might be interested in my products and you would understand them. And I was like, okay. Um, and so he started wow. pouring the bottles out, telling me a story, the stories of each of the producers. Um, along the way. And I had never tasted anything like that in my life. Like that. I had never tasted mezcal before. I remember when, when the brand first came through Indiana, which would have been, gosh, probably 2010 or 11. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. But maybe 11 or 12. Um, actually it was, um, the old co-host of shift drink, Arthur, that was our liquor rep for, um, and he brought in the whole line and Yeah. Because there was nothing like that available in Indiana for sure. And Delmagay was definitely the first mezcal. And I think there were about four or five that came in at the same time. And just tasting them side by side by side, just it, it makes you just feel naive. <laughs> you know, like all this time, this has existed for, I mean, with mezcal, you're talking thousands of years this has yeah. been around. And how have I not known about it, yeah. you know? Well, and so you as an agave kind of, uh, I wouldn't say aficionado, but like loving to make the drinks with them, getting sitting down with Ron Cooper and getting to taste those that very first time, what was going through your head as you're tasting these kind of amazing expressions? Well, I couldn't separate what I was tasting, like the what I was tasting was compounded by what Ron was telling me, right? That that there was a specific human family <laughs> associated mm. with each one of these spirits 
that he was literally telling me the story of. Right? There, there was no other spirit on my back bar like that. No. You know, that, that really had one single master distiller, you know, uh, that, that was celebrated in that, in that way. Right. Um, he also was really paying a lot of attention to, and at this point in time, he had no idea what I had studied. Um, he was telling me a lot about ritual uses, which was really interesting. Cause of course that piqued my interest from what I had studied in graduate school, you know, and, um, you can think about, um, spirits like chartreuse and Benedictine that have been made by orders, you know, um, by monks. Um, but that's very different from this, where the spirit itself and the, also the, the process of making it and also the spirit itself are, they're completely intertwined with, with this ritual nature. Right. Um, and, and so to hear him talk about that, in addition to tasting these things that were just like off the chart, like really the depth of flavor, the layers, um, texture, everything, you know, and then finding out that some of these spirits were 49% alcohol. I was like that. I would have never guessed that in any way whatsoever because of the quality of the distillate, like all of these things combined, it was like, my head was exploding. Um, just, so amazing and really i say it all the time like that was a night that my life changed and not a lot of people yeah, can say that like ahead. i have this jumping ahead uh, she's still there <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know like very few people can say like this one night mm-hmm. changed my life right that was unless thing. it's yeah. it's usually tragic when somebody says right that. right yeah not not for the positive yeah you know that, and that's, that's amazing so i mean at this time you know you're getting a split. I mean, you've already been doing, you said tequila simultaneously at the same time, but, um, you know, spoiler alert, you ended up working, um, <laughs> with Delmaguet in, um, quite a hell of a capacity. And that's a brand that grew. I don't want to say grew quickly because that's really misrepresenting. That's not like, you know, absolute that took we over the world. We just had our you know, 26th it, anniversary. That right. is not <laughs> well, and you know, I but what I guess what I was gonna say, um, is that it was just a hell of an accomplishment because you can go into some really amazing places, and um, there's you know, the very clear, distinct glass or green glass bottles on the bar, they're very easy to spot, like you said, with the you know, kind of woven, um, if they're still there, if not, that you know, you're still at least get your green glass. All the labels are very distinct. I mean, you can you know exactly what you're looking at, um, even from afar. If you can't tell which one it is it, from afar, you can see it. Um, you know, I, I'm thinking just off the top of my head. I remember um, the first time. Well, actually, the very first week that Chino Poblano in Vegas opened, um, I happened to be there, and uh, Chef Jose Andres was was there. Um, it was just a weird. I, I I said something on Twitter, and then like as I'm sitting at the bar, somebody behind me came up and just like shoved a phone on my face and I couldn't see the person yet. And it was like, Hey, is this you? And I looked at the phone and it was Twitter. I was like, Oh yeah, that's me. Uh, and then I turned around and it was chef Andres. I'm like, sir, how are you? You know, and you know, we <laughs> and stood he was there. Probably like, Don't call me, sir. <laughs> you know, what's funny. So totally off topic. And I think I've told this on the show before. I may not have. So it was the first week of, uh, Gino Poblano and, uh, Haleo opening in Vegas. 
And so um, I was out there and our first restaurant had barely been open. So this must have been, gosh, I don't know what year they opened, probably 09, 10, something like that. Maybe 11. I don't, I'm not sure. But uh, so as I'm sitting there um, waiting for my dessert that Jose gave us, um, we, I got a phone call from our manager back home saying, hey, do you know where the wine cellar keys are? And I was like, uh, hold on. And I reached in my pocket and I was like, son of a bitch, they're in my pocket. <laughs> and so I had to go outside and like the kind of like entrance area, you know, where the casino and went into several other restaurants um, and figure out how to like just overnight these keys. <laughs> you know, I needed them back in Indiana ASAP so we didn't kill any more sales. And uh, as I was walking back into the restaurant, <laughs> um, I see... Sandra is standing there with a couple other people um, just kind of bullshitting outside the restaurant in the front. And as I walk by, he like stops talking with them, turns around, throws his hand up. It's like, Ed, high five. And I'm like, <laughs> all right, Jose, high five. Awesome, man. You know, it's like, hey, I'm first name basis. But I could feel the other two people just kind of looking at me. I didn't really look up because I felt awkward at that position and stupid because I just left my keys in my pocket while I went out of town. <laughs> and uh and I told him, you know, he's like, what are you doing out here? And I was like, well, <laughs> forgot to leave the keys at home. And he's like, eh, I've done that shit before. And I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to go back in and finish my dessert. Because, again, I felt awkward because I had these other two other pairs of eyes just kind of on me. I could feel it. Didn't look up because I just felt weird and, um, you know, out of, out of my place. So I went back in, finished. We go back to the uh, hotel room, you know, after dessert, because I'd already eaten dessert before Jose sent over dessert. <laughs> and it was the chocolate terracotta warrior. Anybody that's been there, it's like the largest, most decadent dessert on the menu. And I'd already eaten dessert. So I was feel I was like, I need to kind of chill and go back to my room. I get on Twitter and like 45 minutes later, he tweets out a picture of him with Ferran and Juan Mariarzak. And I was like, that, huh? <laughs> yeah, and I was like, son of a bitch. Did I just walk into the middle of a conversation with three of the best chefs in the world and not fucking say hi? I'm like, I snubbed Ferran. What the hell's going on? You know, um, I was so disappointed that I, and, and so I just, I convinced myself that it didn't really happen. You know, that I was like, well, you know, I didn't see their faces. So maybe it wasn't even them, you know? Um, and I actually, I knew the pastry chef um, next door at, at Holstein's. And uh, I talked to him uh, a couple weeks later, and he was like, "No, it was them." As like, they came in <laughs> here, and we made. What did he tell me? He said they they made every plate that they ordered ten times and chose the best one out of each of the ten because everybody was so nervous to serve like Arzak and Adrias that they just were like, "All right, make ten of these. We'll choose the best one. <laughs> you know? We'll throw the other nine away. It doesn't matter. No pressure." Um, but anyhow, it's uh, a very off topic. But you know, going in there is it was right up front, um, all of the Delmage stuff. Um, and when you go there nowadays, you even see Ron's name on the little like marquee they have outside. You know, uh, they have like the to-go stuff like listed outside of the restaurant and it says like ron cooper mescal and you know that's going from where you're talking about that very first time you know that was in an era where there was just really no placement you didn't see it much to a point where we are now today that i think so many people have seen it that they assume that the company's bigger than it is you know right i see you rolling your eyes because you've probably heard this right like oh that's like or oh they're a sellout or this or that and and 
you know, and I often say that in the craft beer world, right? Like everybody kind of rolls their eyes now about like Sierra Nevada and stuff like that. But that, you know, the whole world that we now live in craft beer, a lot of it is owed to, to brews like Sierra Nevada, you know, that was doing craft before there was a word for craft, you know, it was just, you know, microbreweries or, you know, imports, things like that. And so that happened at a very kind of short time period, last decade, really. And you were largely uh, one of the driving forces of that. Well, I think I think there's a like there's a couple things to say about that. First of all, you know, with a we Del Miguel as an entity started in 1995, which is crazy. You know, yeah. like there, it's insane to think about that. Um, and and really, Ron Cooper was doing all of the heavy lifting. He, you know, he, as an artist, it was him just rolling around with bottles in his bag and going in to see bartenders. He was really smart. He's like, I think wine professionals will get this. And, you know, as the craft cocktail scene was just starting in the late nineties, he's like, they under the craft bartenders understand complex flavors and they're going to get mm -hmm. it. Right. And so he's really smart as far as how he, um, kind of targeted his interactions. Um, but it didn't mean that people were saying yes. You know, he he talks right. a lot about how he would go in and people would be like, yeah, I don't think this has a place here. I'm not interested. And he's mm -hmm. like, if it was a cool spot, I'd make a note and be like, okay, great. I'll see you the next time I'm in town. And he's like, I just kept going back. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> they, they either grew on them or I wore them down. I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, we do hear that, right? He's like, oh, this is amazing, but I don't know how I'm going to sell it. Y yeah. You know? And like, not with just, with, I'm not talking about your products, but um, just a, a lot of things. Yeah. You know, Riesling, you know, I've tasted Riesling a number of times and had to turn the people away. I, I'm a big Riesling geek, but, you know, like, well, I'm not going to be able to sell a $350 bottle of Riesling. I'm sorry, you know, yeah. and and so you, that is a kind of a, a really good way to go about it. Yeah. The people that have kind of an expanded palate that are going to understand those flavors because yeah. there's so much, so many layers. So he wears them down and finally he gets some placement, some <laughs> a little traction. <laughs> Well, you know, I and I think I think it's really important to really recognize the work that he did on his own. Mm, you know, like absolutely. I'm I'm about to hit my eighth year anniversary, but the company is, as I said, we're in our 26th year now, right? So um Ryan Fitzgerald was hired before me. Um, he was with the company for about um nine months or so. Um, or no, a little over a year, I guess. Um before he had the opportunity to go into partnership for ABV, which of course, you know, like, yeah, great. Uh, uh, you should do it. I may, uh, you may have heard of this. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, but really it was, he didn't have consistent full-time help until that point in time, eight years ago. So you, you think about wow. that with the brand, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Right. So you start That's seeing, literally the definition of hand cell, you know, when, yeah, You've got to go around yeah. and do it all yourself. And and I mean, he he definitely he started going. He lives in Taos here in the states, and so he started going to Aspen Food and Wine, and that was where he met um, Steve Olson and uh, Jimmy Yeager, who shortly after meeting Ron went down to Oaxaca on their own with um, with um, Steve's wife, whose father is uh, her family is Argentinian. Um, and, and so, um, speaks fluent Spanish. So she went down as, as, um, a translator with them and, um, 
which allowed them to have an experience on their own. So it wasn't just what, what Ron was telling them. They really got to go and experience what was happening. And it was after that trip that they were like, we're not going to let you fail. Like, this is so special. <laughs> like, you know yeah. it. You've been literally, <laughs> right. uh, like, uh, the company didn't really make money for something like 15 years. Like, wow. uh, it was losing money. I forget the exact number of years, but Ron was really, you know, selling off his personal artwork and his personal mm -hmm. art collection in order to keep the company alive. Um, because from the beginning, he he definitely recognized all of the producers as artists. And as an artist who, you know, th that struggle to really feel like your art is, is, is really holding the value that it should in the wider public. He's like, I'm not ever going to underpay these guys. <laughs> you know, it, they, they need to be making what their art is worth to them. You know, um, it's, it's super important. And so for years, you know, even as I started working with the company, I don't think we weren't finishing years in the black or <laughs> we, were, we were just starting wow. to, you know, yeah. like, and it's crazy to think about. And then as, as more brands started to come, onto the scene there, you know, things started picking up a little bit, but yeah. brands only started coming on the scene because they started to see Del McKay more places. Yeah. Right. You know, and, you like, know, like, was there wasn't a category before well. Del McKay yeah. really. And, and mm -hmm. so I think, I, I think that's really important to recognize, you know, no matter how you feel about the brands, <laughs> you know, like, right. And I think that it is just kind of that, you, you know, once you start to see it often enough, you just assume that the company is bigger and more powerful than than it is um, because you've seen it at several places. Yeah. Well, folks, that's going to be it for this week. We ran a little long during this interview, so uh, taking it and splitting it into two different parts. Uh, this seemed a good point to kind of wrap up this week as we head from Misty's past and uh, kind of coming up in craft cocktails in the mid-90s up to her work with Del Maguey. Next week, we're going to get a little bit further uh, into Mezcal and her work with Ron Cooper and Del Maguey Mezcal. Um, until next time, please make sure you subscribe to our, our podcast on all of your regular apps. You can also find us at shiftdrinkpodcast.com on the socials at Shift Drink Podcast. And, you know, of course, please uh, rate, review, all those fun things while you're at it. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>